Philemon is where we're going to turn, but first I want to look at Matthew 18, if you don't mind. Matthew 18 is a tremendous passage. It kind of helps us get up to speed, I suppose, with what Paul is saying to Philemon here in in this brief letter. <coughs> Matthew 18, our Lord Jesus is talking to his disciples, of course, and, and I won't get into all the, the things. Of course, they were arguing back and forth who's the greatest in verse 1, but then they got into the issue of of sin, that if your brother sins against you, what should you do? Well, verses uh, 14, 15, and, and 16, 17 really talk about that. And, and 18 also talk about what should you, you do if your brother sins? And essentially, if you don't mind me paraphrasing it, be more concerned with your brother who has sinned than you being sinned against. Be, be more concerned about their restoration. This is a brother in Christ. They're sinning. Well, be concerned that they're out of step with God, that they are walking according to their own desires and not according to Christ. Be concerned about that. But then he answers the question because the question comes from Peter, of course, Peter, verse 21. Well, backing up, Jesus said, forgive them many times. Forgive these people. He says, well, how often, verse 21, how often shall I, my brother, sin against me and I forgive him? He, and he's trying to be gracious up to seven times or, or you know, it's it's. He thought it was being very generous. Seven times should I forgive? And Jesus, of course, in verse 22 said, I don't say to you seven. I say to you 70 times seven. In other words, Peter, you thought you were being generous. Let me tell you, you don't even come close to the level of forgiveness that you have been offered and that you must therefore show other people. And then Jesus told this parable. And lest I just overwhelmingly summarizes. Let me just read it because it's it's profound and it's tremendous and it's very helpful and it gives us right into the text of Philemon. Verse 22 says, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents, just parenthetically speaking, is about $158 million dollars. Not an insignificant sum, as Luke, the gospel writer and, and historian, would say. So $158 million. Verse 25. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. Therefore the slave fell to the ground, was prostrating himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll repay you everything. Verse 27, and feeling compassion, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave the debt. $158 million in today's currency. Verse 28 says, that slave, but that slave went down and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. Not an insignificant sum, but it's only like $263. Okay, that'd be helpful. It's a, it's a debt compared to $158 million. Anyway, he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground, was pleading with them, almost verbatim, by the way, what he said to the king. Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his lord said to him, You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. 
Jesus concluded that narrative, that parable, saying, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your hearts. Wow. So which, which of those slaves are we? The one who was forgiven much and then didn't forgive a little? Are we the one who owed? I mean, both of them owed money to to various people. What? How did it come out? Jesus, the, the story was answering the question, how often, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And again, Peter was thought he was being generous, but didn't have an appreciation of how much he, Peter, has been forgiven, had been forgiven through Christ. And and that's really the issue. The issue is not so much, what have they done to me? I mean, they really wronged me. They, you, know, you know how much this cost me or, or whatever when we stop looking at them in terms of their, their sin against me and look at what Christ has accomplished for me, the forgiveness of my sin, the salvation, the forgiveness of a debt that I couldn't pay, I mean, good grief. If you want an evidence of depravity, of depraved thinking, what does this guy say? Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Now, this is a slave and, and uh, one who's being entrusted or is going to be entrusted to prison, the prison house and, and could earn just a pittance a day kind of thing. And I, I'll, no problem. I'll pay you everything. I mean, just absolute insanity. No way could this, this, this servant, this slave ever uh, pay back what was owed. And how in the world did he get in this place in the, in the, in the first place? How did he begin to owe that much money? The point, you know, we can go all kind of different directions with that, but the point Jesus said is, you forgive as you have been forgiven. If you don't forgive other people, then my Father will do the same to you. What what will he do? He's going to be moved with anger, hand him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. How much does a sinner owe God? Everything. Wages of sin is death. Was there any possibility of parole after that? Any possibility of, of uh, time, you know, in exchange for good behavior, all these kinds of things? No. Do you realize at the end of Revelation, it says, let him who is filthy be filthy still. There is no redemption for those who are dead. So Hebrews nine twenty seven, I think it is, says, it's appointed to the man once to die and then comes a second chance? No, judgment. God judges. And do we have that concern? Do we have that fear? And we think, oh, God is so kind and merciful. He'll, he'll, he'll just let everybody in. He'll, he'll, you know, love wins in the end. God is so gracious and kind. And Jesus died for the whole world anyway. And sin isn't that big of a deal. And why don't we just get along? Well, that'd be fine if God wasn't a holy and just God. But God is holy. God is just. God is loving. Oh, he loves and he loves and he loves. And yet, he cannot deny himself. If God could just from heaven forgive sins, just absolve them, say, I forgive you, you're done. Ah, come on in, you knucklehead, and let's have, let's have lunch together. If God could just do that, then he wouldn't be holy. The wages of sin is death. He must, his, his justice must be satisfied. And that's what Christ did on the cross. Realizing what Christ has done for us, the debt that we could never pay, to, to satisfy uh, God's justice informs and enlivens and empowers even our ability to interact with each other. When we have these little bumps, when we have these little $263 debts that are paid each other, when we have uh, other just offenses that happen. Uh, there's a saying that, that says uh, we sin and we're sinned against. Well, that's, you know, surprise. That's, that's not news to anybody. But somehow, sometimes we think that that's 
the way it is, that, that I'm not a sinner. And, and when you sin against me, I just, we just jump out of our skins in anger and violent, you know, righteous indignation against other people who sin. Well, when I sin too, and I have been forgiven much from God, and if I know I've been forgiven, then I should forgive others. All of this, what, what Jesus has been saying in Matthew 18, brings us right into the situation that Paul is saying with Philemon, a master, a slave owner in that first century world, and this former runaway slave Onesimus, this one who had fled from Philemon's household, possibly, probably stole some goods from, from the master and ran off to Rome and somehow found Christ. Christ found him, of course, and was saved. And Paul has told us about this man, Onesimus. You can turn to Philemon again and verse uh, 14-ish. Well, back in verse 10, actually, is where he starts talking about this man, Onesimus, and the change that God has wrought in him, and realizing, you know, th this man, Onesimus, that I have, Paul says, that I've sent back to you, he's not the same guy that ran away from you. He's not the same guy that was in your house serving, maybe half-heartedly, maybe um, ineffectively, maybe not in a reliable fashion. Paul says he was formerly useless to you, verse 11, but now he is useful both to you and to me. This is the one that Paul has become a father of in his chain. So, again, that's a spiritual um, a conversion experience that, that Onesimus had at the hand or the mouth even of Paul speaking the gospel, saving his life. He was formerly useless, but now he's useful. I've sent him back to you in person. That is my own heart. Paul says, I've become so attached to him. I have almost put my whole um, comfort and, and uh, confidence, I mean, in Christ, of course, ultimately, but in this man, Onesimus, he's so useful to me. He's so much a joy to be around. I know he was not that way before, but he's different. You know, I tended to keep him with me so that on your behalf, Philemon, he could minister to me in my chains for the gospel. And but Paul didn't want to do anything out of uh, compulsion without consulting with Philemon as to what, what he wanted to do. The change that God has wrought in Onesimus's life is the basis for Paul to send him back to Philemon saying, hey, receive him. Receive him as if it were me coming back into you. And this brings us into our text for today. He says in verse, verse 16, he's coming back uh, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. How much more to you both in the flesh uh, and in the Lord? And to me, he says, verse 17, though, if you regard me as a partner, if you, Philemon, regard me as a partner, as somebody who has shared in the gospel work, shared in the establishing of a church, shared in standing up against naysayers and, and false teachers and those who even would pick up and, and throw stones at you or at least cast words against you. If you regard me as somebody who is a fellow laborer, even back in verse 1 of this letter, Paul says to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, there's that intimacy, that uh, ex acceptance, that working together that Paul and Philemon had. And based on that relationship, Paul is able to have this very candid conversation and even kind of pushing the bounds of what you might think is appropriate in a letter, a personal correspondence saying, Paul, you're, you're kind of getting out of hand. Well, Paul says, no, I, I don't feel that way at all. I, Philemon, you're my brother. You're my fellow worker. You're my partner in the gospel. You are the one who I, I'm thinking about. You're the one who I'm writing. A, I'm taking the time to write a letter because I'm concerned about your testimony. I'm concerned and, and desiring to see 
the effectiveness of your faith. He says in verse um, six, he says, that the, I pray that the fellowship of your faith or the sharing, the evidence of your faith may become effective. How? Through the full knowledge of every good thing which is in you for the sake of Christ. Paul says, Philemon, I know you're a Christian. I know there are a lot of good things going on in your life. Therefore, I want to see the fruit of that in this situation with Onesimus. One who was definitely, he wronged you. He did. He violated your trust, violated your household. And yet, he's different now. And by the way, you are in Christ also. I know, I, verse 5, I hear of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And... That verse 7, I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. And so Paul is saying so many wonderful things about Onesimus, of course, but he's also saying the same things about Philemon. Philemon, you're just a choice servant of the Lord. You are the one that I see God working in. I want to see God working in this situation also. If you regard me as a partner, this is the first, uh, this next phrase is the first of three commands that, he, that Paul has for Philemon here in this letter at the, as he wraps it up. And the first command is accept him, accept him or receive him, receive this man uh, Onesimus. We have a basis. We have a relationship. We have uh, we partake of the same Christ. We partake of the same gospel. We've been forgiven much. Of course, Paul, being a persecutor of the church, uh, also uh, re recognizes his own debt that was paid through Christ. And he says, Philemon, I, I know you're the same way. Whether or not Philemon is Jewish or Gentile doesn't really matter because the gospel is the power of God and the salvation for Jew, all for Greek, you know, first to the Jew, also to the Greek. So anybody can be saved. And, of course, Colossians 3.11 says the same thing about Jew or Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free man. Christ is all and in all. Christ is the answer to all these things. So regardless, accept this man Onesimus. Accept him. Receive him. Accept him with friendliness, not receive him. You know, draw him closer so you can punch him in the nose. You draw him close as a brother. Even you remember when Paul was going, Saul of Tarsus was going up to Damascus and this man Ananias came up to him after the Lord told him what was going on. And he said, brother Saul, this man who came to Damascus to persecute the church. Now there's a change. Well, Jesus said there's a change in him. I'm going to see this change forthwith. But Ananias acts on that basis and, and just draws him close as a brother. Paul says, you do the same thing toward Onesimus. You make sure that you receive him, not for the, for the, for the purpose of passing judgment. In fact, this word receive is used uh, three or four times, three times, I guess, in the context of Romans 14 and 15 in the in the. Paul talking about weaker brothers, those who have a conscientious objection to this thing over here or that thing, whether it's food or a, a festival or a day, which, of course, back in Colossians says, don't you think that you need to observe all those things for your salvation or your sanctification? But some people, they want to do that as not a, a, a the basis of their salvation, but a, a proof of it. Oh, I, I see so much in relation to, to uh, the Yom Kippur or uh, the Day of Atonement or these other festivals or Sabbath keeping. Well, this fine as, as a fruit of your salvation, but not the root of it. Don't look to that as the basis. Well, I, I kept the Sabbath or I, I kept kosher. I, you know, didn't, didn't. No, it's not that. It's what Christ has done. You look to Christ. And so Paul says, you receive him, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 14, you accept him. Verse uh, 7 of chapter of Romans 15, verse 7 says, therefore accept or receive one another, just as Christ also did what? He accepted us to the glory of God. 
Christ has accepted us, what should we do with one another? Hold each other at arm's length. Watch with, with hawkish eyes, expecting, oh, I know he's buttering me up to... to... No, we, we receive, we're gracious toward one another. We think the best. We, we don't... 1 Corinthians 13. Keeping a record of wrong suffered? No, love doesn't do that. Uh, uh, responding in a, in a harsh tone? No, kindness, gentleness, uh, reasonable sweetness going on there. Accept one another. Paul says, accept him, Onesimus, as you would accept me. Accept him, you could think of it in two different ways, I suppose. Accept him as you would accept me. That could mean receive him in the same way that you'd receive me. So whatever Philemon was planning to do next time he saw Paul, well, do that, Philemon, to Onesimus. And you think, I was going to give you a kiss on the lips, or, you know, it's a Greek Hellenistic time, uh, kiss on both cheeks, or, or a good, good firm handshake, whatever it is. Some kind of a, a friendly greeting. Accept him, receive him in the same way that you would receive me. Or he could be saying it this way, receive him as if you're receiving me. In the place of me, I'm sending Onesimus. So whatever you plan to do for me, you do to him. Either way, it is a profound statement of not judgment, not retribution, not revenge, not these things, kindness, love, grace. We read our opening scripture last week, I think, from Matthew 25, where Jesus says, verse 34, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I, Jesus says, was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Of course, the rest of that context says the disciples will say to him, When did we do that? And he says, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. I accept the service you rendered to them as unto me. Paul says, whatever you, Philemon, do to Onesimus, you're doing it to me. I will regard whatever you do to Onesimus as actions toward me, whether it's abundant grace or a heavy hand, a hard-heartedness. Either way, Paul says, you be careful what you, what you do to Onesimus. Accept him as you would me. Now, verse 18 says, if... It's almost like if perchance the possibility exists that this may have happened. It's almost Paul acknowledges that Onesimus did wrong by his master Philemon. And by running away, possibly also by stealing, he says, if he has wronged you, acted unjustly toward you, which uh, can refer to a lot of different things. One is even an assault, like a physical harm, um, Injury, personal injury, did, did Onesimus beat up Philemon before he left? I don't know if that's really the case. It seemed like there, there wasn't that. But but a lot of times this, this idea of, of causing a physical harm is this word uh, wronged. This, he, if he has wronged you, if he's assaulted you, if he's assaulted anybody in your household, well, if he has wronged you or owes you anything, charge that to my account. If he has wronged you. Now, what is interesting about this because we just studied Colossians, right? Colossians 3, a lot of text. More, more text, more words are spent on the, the requirements or commandments to slaves than on husbands, wives, parents, children, or masters even. More time is spent on what slaves ought to do. And Paul says about slaves, Colossians 3 and verse 25, he who does wrong, same word here, he who has wronged or are unjustly acted toward other people, will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. And that without partiality. And you think, wait a minute, the one who has done wrong will get the consequences, will get the judgment for what he's done? And now Paul says, if he's wronged you, just you know, charge that to my account. 
is what Paul is doing is acknowledging there was an offense. There was a a separation of fellowship. There was a disappointment at the very least. He's not dismissing the, the fact of that. He's saying if or because there's some measure of, of um, separation between you and Onesimus, I'll pay it. You charge that against me. Whatever Onesimus has done, don't take it out on him. Lay it on my charge. Practically, in terms of the assault or the unjust behavior, Philemon, don't take your vengeance out on Onesimus. He's a changed man, but if you want to take your vengeance out, justly so, you do it toward me. You know, the one word that, or whole sentence, of course, that Paul says to masters, Colossians 4 and verse 1, masters, show to your slaves what is right and fair, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So it's not like Philemon must show magnanimous, you know, abundant generosity toward Onesimus. He must in one sense, but in ultimate sense, do what's right. Do what is fair toward him, knowing that you also have a master who's in heaven. So in other words, do to others as you'd have them do to you. Paul says, what you would like to do to Onesimus, you regard that as doing it to me. I want you to receive him as you'd receive me, but if you want your pound of flesh, to quote Shakespeare and Shylock and the Merchant of Venice, you take that against me. You apply that to my account. He goes on, he says, if he owes you anything, if he, and that would some, mean some kind of a debt, maybe that, uh, I look back on my notes, $263, uh, you know, 100 denarius um, debt that the one slave owed to the other slave, or the $158 million debt that the first slave owed to the master, the king. Whatever he owes you, Philemon, you charge that to me, I will repay. In fact, he almost writes a promissory note in the next verse. But the point is here, there is justice, there is fairness, there is the need of restitution. When we can forgive, we can forget. Well, for, I think when we finish this book, I need to go through forgiveness and give a good good uh, treatment of that. We've done it before, but I need to remind ourselves what does it mean. For, for, forgiveness does not mean to forget, like in memory, I, I what? You're talking about something I don't even have any, in, any recall about. I don't remember that at all. It's not that. Forgiveness is remembering not a choice not to remember against somebody else. And we'll talk about that after we finish up Philemon. We'll get into the forgiveness aspect. We see it here very practically. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Restitution is part of a a restoration of, of fellowship, restoration of friendship in a marriage situation, parent-child, any kind of personal, interpersonal relationships. If there has been an offense that has caused a separation Repentance, confession, forgiveness, restitution, paying back what you owe, paying for what you have done. And not just the minimal amount, we see a commandment back in numbers. We are not under the Mosaic law, but what the Mosaic law is, does, it informs us or helps us understand what is God's justice like? What is God's morality like? And we see this issue of restitution. Numbers chapter 5, verse 6 says, When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against Yahweh, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins, which he's committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth. So 
more than whatever the, the offense was, and give it to him, who, him whom he has wronged. If the man has no kinsman redeemer to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to Yahweh for the priest, besides the ram of atonement by which atonement is made for them. So there is forgiveness, there is restitution, though, that is part of that. You can... As, a, as one who is owed that restitution, I can forgive it, I can, I can uh, cancel that, but it is the obligation of the offender to offer, to pay back. And Paul says, on behalf of Onesimus, let me tell you, I will repay. I will uh, take his debt, his penalty uh, for, for his wrongdoing. If he's wronged you, owes you anything, charge it to my account. This, this word, what he's doing here, is what we refer to in a theological sense as imputation. To impute something means it goes to somebody else, but it's being imputed to me. There's an example in, I may remember where it is. He says, to charge that to my account. First Samuel 22. You remember when David was fleeing from Saul uh, the first time? What is that? I mean, he ran away many times, but he went to the priests at Nob, a, a suburb of Jerusalem. That's where the priests were ministering and, and different things were going on. And that is where the some measure of the tabernacle, some aspect of, of the worship of Yahweh is going on at Nob or Nob, if you want to do it Hebraically. But he goes up to the, the priest and says, whatever you have, do you have anything to eat around here? And the, you remember that whole situation, the showbread and all this. And then David asked for a sword and, and a um, Himelech, the priest chief dude there, said, well, I have nothing but the sword of Goliath, the guy who you slew. This is First Samuel 22. And you, read, you know the rest of the story, right? David took the showbread, took the, the uh, Goliath's big sword and fled. Well, Saul heard what happened and he brought Ahimelech and all the other priests and imputed the unrighteousness, the, the wrong that David had done against Ahimelech. What does Ahimelech say? Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing, small or great of this whole effect. We don't know what you're talking about. He came to me. He came on the king's business. He assumed he was doing I, it's not the first time I inquired of the Lord about him or for on his behalf. So don't impute to me. Don't charged to my account his sin, Paul says, whatever his sin was, the exact opposite. Charge that to my account. We talk a lot about imputed righteousness. Do you know the word imputation or what we have here, charge that to my account, is not used a lot of times. We use it more in a theological sense because that is Christ's righteousness imputed to us. In other words, it's an alien righteousness. You think, what? Is aliens? We're talking about aliens and church? Yes, because it is something foreign to me. I need a righteousness not based on my performance, my heritage, my identity, my future plans. I need some, a gift righteousness, something that is imputed, is not original to me. It is something granted to me. The only other place where this word is used, this way that it's constructed is in Romans 5, verse 13, and to the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed or granted or charged to your account when there's no law, when there is nothing that would state this is wrong. But when we do have a word that says this is wrong, then that sin is imputed, and we know that we are guilty. In other words, Jesus, Jesus is saying through Paul, of course, charge that to my account, impute his unrighteousness, whatever vengeance you want out of him, whatever restitution you demand of him, you put that on my account. And he says, you know, as a promissory note, when you sign a loan, when you sign uh, your borrow, borrowing money for a car or a house or 
an engagement ring, perhaps, I don't know, uh, you, you sign your name. And Paul says, right in the, kind of the, not the middle, but right in the midst of this letter, he puts his name. Usually, he, you know, he doesn't do that, but he, on, on various occasions, he will mention his name in connection with something that he's writing to affirm, to add some solemnity to it, to add some, some weight. He's not just saying words. He really means it. He means what he's saying. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. Was he right-handed or left-handed? Now, there's a, I don't know. If he's writing this with his own hand, some would say he's writing the whole letter. It's a brief letter. You know, one single sheet of parchment, perhaps. Did he write the whole letter, or did he take up the pen from the, his secretary, his scribe, his amanuensis, and, and is he writing this section? Either way, this is a personal Involvement. Paul is personally invested in this whole thing, not just for the sake of Onesimus, not just for the sake of Philemon, but for the glory of Christ working in the church. If we can't deal with these issues at the very beginning, then what? how are we any different from the world? The world just separates over all kinds of different issues. Uh, you, you burnt my toast or whatever. I mean, that... Do you realize that whole conversation that the rabbis in the early first, second centuries had about marriage and divorce? Well, you can divorce a woman for any particular reason, even if she burnt the toast. Well, that's not right. That's not, no, we, we don't do that. You be gracious one to another. Paul says, I want the glory of Christ's gospel, changing hearts, Onesimus' heart, my heart, Philemon, your heart as well. I want that glory to just overflow to be the the aroma of life to life those who are who are alive in christ and aroma of death to death because people say how in the world are you doing this how in the world have you forgiven somebody that did this great offense to you or to somebody that you love how can you even live without just breaking down in grief and despair christ has forgiven me much greater than what i ever i've forgiven that other person and you think oh you you don't know what they've done do you know what I've done to God? When, when David says against you and you only have I sinned, well, he killed somebody. He committed adultery with somebody. He enlisted Joab, his general, to essentially be, you know, aid and abet a murder of a, of a faithful, one of his mighty men, right? Uriah the Hittite was one of David's trusted dudes. But all the sin that affected other people very directly David says, I was a sinner against God. I offended a, a righteous, holy, awesome God. That is my m most serious regret. He, of course, he's apologetic, sorry, penitent over what other sin he had committed to the people, but before God is his ultimate uh, angst or, or anxiety. Thankfully, in Christ, these sins have been forgiven. Paul says, look, I'm, I'm taking up this pen because this is an important issue, not just interpersonally, but for the sake and glory of Christ and his gospel. I'm writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. What, what's he going to repay? Whatever restitution Onesimus must pay back to Philemon, uh, could be the hundred denarii thing, or you know, God forbid, the 10,000 uh, talents, the $158 million deal. Either way, Paul says, I'll repay it. How is Paul going to do this? I mean, he, he's in prison. He's not able, right? House arrest, anyway. Acts 28 records all that. How is he going to do this? It's kind of like that that first servant, Matthew 18. Oh, uh, let, I'll repay. I'll repay you everything. How is Paul going to do it? Paul has a history of taking care of other people. He says, I will 
fulfill anything that, that any obligation that other people have. I will do my best to meet the needs of those about me. Acts 20 records a word that he, he says to the elders in Ephesus, elders that he spent three years with, and he says, uh, Acts 20 and verse 33, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to those who are with me. And everything I showed you that by working, laboring in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. He himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul had this pattern in his life. He would work very hard so that other people can be benefit from his labor. He also said in Ephesians uh, 4, at the end of verse at the end of chapter 4, he's talking about those who stole. Now, again, Onesimus owes something to Philemon. He was a thief, at least in that one sense. Well, if, if you're a thief in that sense, I imagine he stole other things. Stole time, anyway, right? He was a useless slave to Philemon. And Paul says in Ephesians 4 and verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. So instead even of taking something for myself or now working to provide for my own needs, Paul says, no, you become not a taker, but a giver. I have coveted no one's silver, gold, or clothes. I have labored with my own hands. I've given to other people. And so I'll repay whatever. The, it's not a big deal. My God shall supply all my need according to his riches in grace by Christ Jesus. Philippians 4 talks about that. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's not talking about jumping over a mountain or, or you know, athletic prowess or being a great investor. It's being content. Whether I am abounding or abasing, I have learned to be content. I can do all things, Philippians 4.13 through Christ who gives me strength. And so God will provide. God provides for my needs. If you, Philemon, want me to repay on behalf of Philemon or Onesimus, God will provide those resources to pay you back. But then he says, parenthetically here, not to mention, and then he mentions it. I'm not going to say, but let me just say it. You owe me your own life, your own self, Philemon, you're going to ask me to repay that 100 denarius thing that Onesimus owes you? Okay, fine, I'll repay it, but let me tell you something. And he, in a nice way, he's not getting angry or hot under the collar like I am. He says, you owe me your own life. Philemon, you have been forgiven a debt you could never pay. Not against Paul. You have been forgiven from God. God the Father, through your faith in Christ, through the gospel that I preach to you, you have forgiveness. And so I'm not going to go there, but I am. Philemon, you've been forgiven much. You forgive much. And then, I mean, he could quote Matthew 18, 35. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your hearts. It's a big deal. Forgiveness is a big, huge deal. Do you know the one comment, the one explanatory, explanatory statement that Jesus has about his is uh, what we call the Lord's Prayer, but is better referred to as the Disciples' Prayer because it's a prayer for us to pray to God. He says, forgive us our debts. Same idea, what you owe to other people, but here it's the debts toward God. Forgive us our debts to you as, in the same way, just as, because we forgive our debtors, those who trespass against us, those who have violated our trust or, or caused some offense to us, caused, done us wrong, they've done us wrong. God forgive us as we forgive other people. And he says, 
verse 14, Matthew 6, If you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. This is a big deal. Forgiveness is a big deal for us to, to, to uh, practice daily, daily, daily. Every time we need to overlook the, the issues, the, the faults of other people, and hope that they would also overlook our own faults. G- Peter, Paul, excuse me, says, you owe to me, you owe your eternal life, your eternal standing before God to me, because I'm the one who, who brought the message of the gospel to you. When did Paul do it? Because Paul had never been to Colossae, or at least had not been, Colossians tells us, he, for those who have not personally seen my face, Philemon is from Colossae. But Paul was in Ephesus, 100 miles away from Colossae for three years. It could be that either as, as Paul was packing, passing through the area of Colossae, going on to Ephesus, that somehow he interacted with Philemon, or Philemon came to faith during Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Either way, excuse me, Philemon owes Paul his own life. What is Philemon going to do? You know, Paul says, I don't want to do that. I want to force you anything. I don't want to, you know, I could based on my... You know, I'm Paul, the aged, and now I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus and chains for the gospel. I could do all these things. I could command you, but I want this to come from you, Philemon. But let me tell you, I mean, it's almost the, the, the forcefulness that Jesus had. If you don't forgive other people, what are you going to expect from God? If you have been forgiven much, you forgive much. Or if you have loved Christ, or, or excuse me, if you have been loved by God so much, then you love. You respond in love and grace, not just to God. Didn't we just read First John? We say we love God, but we hate the brothers. How can that be? How does the love of God abide in that person? If we say we love God, then we'll love the brothers. We'll love the family of God. We'll love those who, who you know, stomp on your toes and, and punch your nose and, and uh, do things that are just irritating, if not offensive, at least irritating. Why does that person have to do this? Why do you, you know, oh, good. And we just harp on each other. We, we, we get down on each other. No. God accepts us. God receives us into his house. So he brings us right in. You know, come on in for a hug kind of thing. God does that. Can we do that for other people? Can we do that in this congregation? Can we sow grace toward one another just as we have been shown grace? Paul says, remember, keep things in perspective. Yes, you're sinned against. Oh, he violated your trust. Philemon, I know you have a, a, a basis for a charge against him. But let me tell you, let me remind you of how much you have been forgiven by God. And let that inform how you're going to interact with this man Onesimus standing before you right now. What are you going to do about it? Forgive. We'll see how the response is, how the expectation is as we go on in this, in this letter. Hopefully, Lord willing, next week we'll, we'll finish it up. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your grace, your kindness, your love to us. Abundant grace just poured out upon us because of what Christ has done. It's not like his salvation is, is somehow insignificant or inconsequential or somehow uh, helpful to get us started on the way to salvation. No, it is the way of salvation. It is the com- comprehensive and complete uh, justification, the imputed righteousness, alien righteousness that we couldn't ever accomplish on our own sakes based on our perfect lives, our perfect obedience. No. Christ's obedient life, his sacrificial death for us, you accepted as if it was our death, our perfect life. We can be given that righteousness. Please help us to show this same grace toward other people, what you have shown to us. Please help us to take this lesson from Philemon and Onesimus and be so gracious. 
be so kind, be so abundant in the work of the gospel, work of a changed heart. I mean, Onesimus was not a good fellow. Philemon, Paul, they weren't good. We are not good people, but you are one who can make us new from the inside out. We pray that you'd save. Please bring into your family those who are here this morning who are not in Christ, that they would trust you for salvation, for forgiveness, this incredible debt that we could never begin to repay. Never. No possibility. But you are so gracious to cancel that debt. You are to, to just eliminate it, remove it from any consideration and bring us near by the blood of the cross. We pray that you'd sanctify us. Please help us to grow in Christ. Please help us to reflect it day by day. Kindness, gentleness, forbearance, putting up with each other, enduring one another, but being so hopeful in what you're doing, changing our lives, growing us to be more like Jesus. Please bless our time together as we continue in fellowship and praise to you and encouraging in the, in the gospel in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.